Chicago-based United Airlines is set to cut 16,000 jobs, making their workforce about 26 percent smaller than the roughly 91,000 employees it had before the coronavirus outbreak. And a pandemic and a summer of uncertainty have fueled anxiety and brought little consensus about how to safely reopen schools, leaving parents, teachers, and students with strong and varied emotions. Crane's government reporter A.D. Quigg joins the podcast today to talk about the topic, which is the focus of this month's Crane's Forum Deep Dive. This this massive and quick expansion of e-learning that might offer new, flexible ways for kids to learn. You know, why can't a kid who doesn't have a selective enrollment school or an international baccalaureate program, why can't they hop in and take that class? We are not um, bound by geographical issues anymore. Kids can simply tune in. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, September 2nd. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. We're joined now by Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg. Okay, so A.D., this month, the forum takes a look at a topic that I think a lot of people are talking about, and that is, this year has been a lot, and as we have gotten to the back-to-school time, there's been very little consensus about how the, about the path forward, and that's left parents and teachers and students with with a lot of feelings. So, so talk me through the the forum focus this month. Yes. So the the general gist at the beginning was just um, education in the COVID era, and it was a very broad ask. Part of the project was just saying in three words or less: parents, students, teachers, administrators, how are you feeling about the start of the school year? And all we heard was anxious, 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 because people are put in these kind of no-win situations. And when I say people, I mean everybody. School administrators trying to figure out, is it safe to reopen and welcome kids back when we know so little about how sick kids might get or how um, contagious they are if they receive the vaccine? Can we physically set up our schools and our classrooms to keep students physically away from each other and if we if we can't do that um, how can we do remote learning in a way that is effective that students can actually access there are tens of thousands of students that don't even have internet access many don't have devices there's the question of can you really get little kids to watch a screen for hours on end Um, then there's the feeling of of teachers worried about um, bringing this home to their own families and friends. There were just so many unknowns and so many differing um, interests in this that we've never really had to confront before. We haven't thought hard about what an important piece of infrastructure schools are for everyone. It's not just where kids go to learn. It's where uh, parents put their kids so that they can go to work. Um, We schedule, even people without children like me, uh, their year is still scheduled around the school year. It's where a lot of kids get fed. It's a safe space for kids. It's a it's a gathering and community space. We're finally just kind of beginning to reckon with 
with that on top of figuring out if we can do um, remote learning successfully because there's hundreds of thousands of kids doing remote learning and in a non-emergency capacity. When we did this back in the spring, it was like all of a sudden emergency, kids held harmless, we're going to go easy on SATs and standardized tests, grades aren't going to stick, but now we're really trying it um, in earnest and seeing if it works for the first time ever. It's just a, it's a massive undertaking and there's a lot of different stakeholders impacted by every single decision. Yeah, that, that certainly seems to be the case. And and one organizer that you talked to, I thought this was a, a really important and interesting thing to highlight, and that was how some existing uh, how some existing inequalities in the school system among various stakeholders are really exacerbated by the by the crisis that we're in. Right. So this was this came up over and over again. Um, how much worse will th- the current situation we're in make existing class and racial divides? How much how much wider will those divides get? Um, we're seeing some parents of means instead of having their kids at school, pulling those kids out of school and perhaps doing small pods at home with private tutors. We still have, uh, by CPS estimates, 82,000 or so students that they know didn't have internet starting the year that still haven't responded to CPS efforts to get them connected to internet for free. There's also socio-emotional learning gaps that, you know, exist during a regular school year, but with kids away from that structure and safe space and the interaction daily that they have with authority figures, teachers and administrators that care about them, will they be able to handle the stress and uncertainty and entirely new way of learning um, and how much further back might those kids fall? There's also just like the outside, the outside stress for a lot of families, especially um, single parent families who have to figure out how to get and keep their kids on track while maybe going into work every day. And parents also dealing, potentially dealing with evictions, job losses, um, housing instability. How does that impact a kid's learning environment? Let's say you also have students or homes with multiple students in them, are the older kids then expected to be a tutor to the younger kids? And how does that impact the older kids' learning? There's just so many variables that are uh, so difficult to work around. And education is not, um, not a big space for differentiation. And big school districts like CPS are not used to having to move this quickly. Another part of uh, your reporting that that stands out to me is uh, the director of the Public Education Leadership Project at the Harvard Graduate School of Education talks a bit about opportunities for for rethinking the way we do things and forging new kinds of partnerships. Tell me about that a bit more. Yeah, there were there were some kind of bright spots or hopeful spots in all of this. It wasn't it wasn't all dread. This massive and quick expansion of e-learning being forced to try something completely new that might offer um, new flexible ways for kids to learn, maybe meeting kids where they're at, maybe giving kids access to teachers and resources that they might not have had before. I had someone say, you know, why can't a kid um, who doesn't have a selective enrollment school or an international baccalaureate program, why can't they tune into a a class that um, a professor or, or a teacher at one of the the city's greatest high schools is presenting. Why couldn't they hop in and take that class? We are not um, bound by geographical issues anymore. Kids can simply tune in. 
What does it mean for parents who didn't have a computer or internet in the home to have computer and internet in the home now? Can they find new jobs? Can they access new resources? Can kids who are bullied at school access remote learning year-round? Are there certain kids that do better with a flexible schedule and remote learning? And then there's just kind of the broader picture about how we think about teacher evaluation, how we think about high-stakes testing, how we deploy personnel. There are school staff that won't be teaching, that don't normally teach. How can we, how can we use them in different ways? And how can we rethink what teachers can access, what students So she's kind of hopeful that uh, being forced to do this massive (laughs) experiment in education might force school districts and school administrators into thinking differently about ways that education can be delivered and if it can help in the long term kind of address those racial and class gaps we talked about earlier. There there is some hope. There is some hope for innovation and kind of being being forced to adapt this quickly um, might end up with something good, but it, it takes... It takes long-range thinking that is really hard to do in the middle of an emergency. Yeah, I think that's really what's emerging here is there's there's two distinctive there's two very distinctive conversations and that is what do we do right now to get through this moment day by day and support people who are in it and then what does the long term look like? And it seems like those two things are are not that connected. They seem like very very different conversations. No, and that you know that's true in in every industry that's grappling with this, right? Like our business, we have a bunch of people working from home now. Um, what does that, what's the long-term impact then on downtown real estate? Um, there's a ton of people who work and live downtown that haven't been, um, haven't been going into their workplaces. We might see uh, smaller leases. We might, we might also see uh, more accessibility for, for government. On my beat, I know that now everything is online. Does that mean more people can participate in government? Every industry is kind of grappling with having to go through this emergency and finding workarounds and hopefully thinking hard about what the good in those workarounds are and how it might be able to make things better. But the the emergency aspect of this is so difficult to get around. CPS, for example, is still trying to figure out how to connect um, working parents with childcare and other resources so that they can continue to go to work because if if you have to stay home with your kid and make sure they get out go to school or if they're so young they can't be home unsupervised what do you do and there will be emergencies like this over and over uh, including at I'm sure and we've already seen this at some of the schools that are going back in person we had we had St. Benedict Prep in in Chicago um, one of the archdiocese schools that's going back in person have a COVID outbreak and have to shut down their junior high immediately. So there's going to be short-term emergencies that kind of come up over and over again that make it hard to do some of that long-range, long-range planning. And what about concerns for issues long-term? Was there concern that you found around maybe long-term intellectual impact on students or emotional impact? What about that? Definitely. One, one study I read kind of early on was from NWEA, and they basically found that lowest achieving children could fall two or more years behind. And it's, it's really difficult to measure how social isolation, stress over health and family finances, upended routines have messed with kids' uh, social emotional learning. Um, 
but Mar- Mark Kleisner, uh, one of my favorite sources on this and one of the first people I talked to that kind of gave me a scope of how much they're worrying about, said, you know, without the structure of a regular school year, um, he just fears students are going to fall behind a lot more. And that doesn't just impact students, that impacts the range of issues that teachers have to address. So they're basically asking, figure out where your students are at when you start the school year, figure out a way to bridge the gap between maybe what they didn't learn at the end of last year and the start, what they need to start on this year, and then close that gap, which is tough for teachers because differentiation is already hard to do. There are some kids, they, they generally account on a couple months of learning loss between the end of the school year and summer, but last year, the end of the year was so chaotic that you might have missed, think about going back to school, the kinds of stuff that you learned in the last quarter, maybe to prepare for finals. How, how do you do um, Algebra 2 if you missed the last quarter of Algebra 1? How do you do Bio 1 without some of that stuff? How do you do pre-calc? So teachers are being asked to address that range and the range of what students know and don't know at the end of the year depends a lot on what their summer looked like and if they had access to tutors or parents or other kind of supplemental learning between when the chaos started in March and the beginning of the school year in late August or September. It's just, it's a lot to ask of everyone. There's a lot of reporting that you did on this and you talked to a lot of people with really interesting points of view and interesting stakes in this, in this issue. So everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and, and read this for yourself because I think it's really important to take in and, and see the full thing. But AD, in your reporting of this, what, was, what else to you really kind of stood out as maybe surprising or, or unexpected? Uh, one thing I've thought about but hadn't thought about fully was just how difficult it is to do infection control at something at schools and how many resources schools would need to pull it off and how much we still don't know about how kids get and transmit the virus. Um, very late in August, a study came out that basically found that kids might not get as seriously sick as adults do with COVID, but they could be carrying a massive viral load that makes them more contagious to other people. And that's a really scary thought especially if kids are asymptomatic carriers, are they that much more contagious to um, their other friends and family that they might be interacting with or other teachers that they're interacting with? And schools are not ready for testing, first of all. There's, um, we don't have cheap and easy surveillance testing happening at schools so we can get ahead of infections when we need to. So having an idea of how many potentially infected kids you have roaming the hall, you might not know until... They are already showing symptoms and sick and test positive. And given what we know about kids and viral load, they could have spread it to a ton of people by that time. It's, it's possible to do infection control, but it takes a ton of work. And the fact that the school day is just so long and kids have a cer- only a certain amount of control, you know, not every kid might be able to keep their mask on all day, might be able to keep far enough away from other students or teachers or are washing their hands in the surgical way that we all learned how to do back in in January and February. It's just um, the the health aspect of this, the testing protocol and infection control stuff is something I hadn't thought hard about as as to how it applies to kids. That, That was a really interesting conversation. And also what I heard from teachers, particularly CPS teachers, about how prepared they felt going into the start of the school year Um, The Chicago Teachers Union was very vocal that they needed resources and training to try to get this done. I spoke with a special ed 
uh, teacher who has really high needs students this year and they're really young so it's hard to get them engaged on Zoom when they're so used to doing like high touch, one-on-one interaction with their teachers and, and what a big um, what a big challenge that is for for teachers like that. And I'll, I'll be interested to see kind of how the labor battle continues to play out. Um, we saw archdiocese, some archdiocese teachers saying, we don't want to go back, we don't feel protected, but don't really have a union to fight that battle for them. So when CPS gets through this first quarter and they kind of assess where they are in terms of um, infection rates in the city, what's that labor battle going to look like between CTU and CPS about um, a potential hybrid model coming back, and will this lead to another, because I cover politics, will this lead to another um, another face-off between CPS, CTU, and potentially the mayor's office? And speaking of your beat and the things that you cover, what else will you be watching in the days ahead? Yes, so today um, three members of the Illinois House that are Republicans filed a special petition to call for um, a committee, essentially, to investigate House Speaker Mike Madigan, and if he had committed enough wrongdoing uh, in reference to this ComEd deferred prosecution agreement to warrant him being disciplined or even getting kicked out of the Illinois House. Um, We found out about this in a very odd and out-of-order way. First, we got a statement from uh, Speaker Madigan basically saying, this is a political stunt before the election. I didn't know what it was actually about because he didn't speak much about the petition itself. We got another one from Democrat Majority Leader Greg Harris saying, yes, we're going to convene this special panel. It's related to a petition from three Republican members. We've only done this twice before in the past two decades. Um, Once was for State Rep Derek Smith, who was accused of accepting a $7,000 bribe. And the other was for State Rep Louis Arroyo, who resigned before the committee could really get up and running. And then we heard uh, Governor Pritzker talk about this today. I have never sat through one of these uh, previously. I'm excited, I don't know if excited is the proper word, to see what this process is like and if we can get additional information about exactly what the relationship was between Madigan and ComEd that we don't have from uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. So basically, what information is out there that isn't in the deferred prosecution agreement with ComEd that we can figure out through these hearings. There's a lot going on on your beat, so I'm going to let you get back to it, but thanks so much for taking the time to talk all this through today. Thank you. Coming up, the inaugural Chicago Business Leader Tracker, conducted exclusively by Cranes for the Harris Poll, reveals the latest thinking among Chicago executives on a range of issues affecting the city. We'll take a look at that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash chicagocomesback. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. United Airlines is furloughing or laying off 16,000 jobs across the airline because of the massive decline in travel caused by the coronavirus pandemic. About 7,400 workers have taken early retirements or other voluntary exit packages. And between that and furloughs, United's workforce will be about 26% smaller than the roughly 91,000 workers it had before the pandemic. United CEO Scott Kirby had warned in the spring when travel all but stopped that the airline might need to be 
be about 30% smaller at the point when federal relief funds run out. And the airline, the largest carrier at O'Hare, came up with voluntary programs from sharing jobs to allowing workers to keep their health benefits even if they weren't working, which reduced the number of layoffs. And in the aviation world, staffing cutbacks are pretty complicated because of the long-term planning that's required to bring aircraft and crews back online when demand recovers. And it's particularly tricky for pilots because of expensive training that's required to maintain their certification. So United Management is essentially staffing for next summer, while air travel is currently more than 70% below normal levels. The COVID outbreak is causing waves of layoffs across the airline industry, which has been among the hardest hit by the pandemic, along with with hotels, conventions, and restaurants. American Airlines, which is the second largest carrier at O'Hare, said it recently would cut 19,000 jobs. Combined with voluntary exits, the Fort Worth, Texas-based airline will be about 30% smaller. American employed about 10,000 workers in Chicago prior to the pandemic. And Southwest Airlines, which is the largest carrier at Midway Airport, isn't cutting jobs, but 27% of its workers have taken voluntary exits or other types of leaves. That airline employs about 5,500 workers locally. Chicago Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwady said soon Indiana could be on Chicago's COVID-19 travel quarantine list. The state already meets the city's threshold for its travel order, meaning it has more than 15 cases per 100,000 people. But Arwady said that spike is driven in part by new data reporting in Indiana to include antigen tests. And that said, a rise in cases linked to universities are areas of concern. So far, Notre Dame reportedly has 577 confirmed COVID cases and Ball State has had 234 cases. Also this week, the city added North Carolina, Hawaii and Nebraska to its list, making a total of 21 states and Puerto Rico included in the travel order. Arwady also said she's concerned about a potential second wave in fall or winter, saying, quote, We are not seeing the very rapid increases like we saw in March and April that threatened to overwhelm our health care system. But even this slow increase particularly as I think about a slow increase layered on top of colder weather coming, less ability for us to have gatherings outside, and continued, we think about flu and other viruses that tend to spread more in the wintertime. I'm really worried about what the fall and winter are going to look like. Arwitty said she's concerned about high rates across the Midwest, and with some states seeing more cases in the last week than they've had at any point to date during the nationwide COVID outbreak, noting that Iowa is leading the nation in terms of COVID cases per capita. Governor J.B. Pritzker and the state's Department of Public Health also announced extra mitigation efforts would go into effect in the Metro East area. And that area, which is right there near St. Louis, reported a seven-day rolling test positivity average of 9.6%. Dining at bars and restaurants will be limited to outdoors, and social gatherings will be limited to 25 guests or 25% of room capacity. Party buses will be barred, and casinos will have to cut capacity to 25% as well. Metro East joins the state South Suburban Region 7, which has had extra mitigation efforts in place since August 26th. Chicago-based Oak Street Health is teaming up with Walmart in a big bet on health care. The network of primary care centers, which went public last month, announced plans to open clinics at three Walmart stores in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. While Oak Street Health's current model focuses on patients 65 and older, the retail clinics expected to open later this year will treat patients of all ages. 
Walmart recently expanded other health offerings to include dental care and counseling, among other services, at certain locations in Georgia and Arkansas. CEO Doug McMillan said in a June statement that Walmart Health is still in a pilot phase, but that the chain is looking to open such locations in Chicago. And Walmart isn't alone in the mission. Walgreens plans to put Village MD clinics in several hundred of its stores in the next five years, and CVS Health plans to launch 1,500 health hubs by the end of 2021. You can find a ton of data about this next story at chicagobusiness.com, but here's the gist. The first edition of the Chicago Business Leaders Tracker, which is a survey of 200 local business leaders conducted for Crane's Chicago Business by the Harris Poll, reveals the latest thinking among Chicago executives on a range of issues from post-COVID work life to crime and law enforcement. And here are some highlights. Less than a third of business people polled say they're going to need all the space they currently occupy when the pandemic passes. But despite COVID and concerns about public safety in Chicago, Governor J.B. Pritzker's proposed graduated income tax amendment has some favor. Overall, the survey conducted online from August 4th through 14th of owners and executives of small and mid-sized companies indicates that recovery from the pandemic is going slowly and may well be affected by concerns over unrest and crime in the city, as well as continuing pension woes. And companies are also thinking about bringing back workers, and in some cases, they're starting to do so from remote locations. With 94% saying they plan to have at least a quarter of their team return to the office within six months. When asked about returning at least three quarters of the team to the office, 66% of respondents say they expect to do so within six months. Related to that, just 31% of those polled said they expect to keep all of the office space that they currently have. 34% said they intend to get rid of at least half of their space, and 6% say they've already dropped or changed their leases. Slightly more people said that fighting COVID ought to be a higher priority than reopening the economy, 29% to 18%, with 17% saying that curbing crime ought to be the top concern. As for Pritzker's graduated income tax amendment, on the ballot coming up on November 3rd, a total of 55% of those surveyed said they strongly or somewhat backed the proposal, compared with 45% opposed. Again, you can find all this data and check it out for yourself at chicagobusiness.com. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, A.D. Quigg. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.